life, art, the Bible, and the conversations that tend to arise between them all. Life is not simple, art is not boring, and the Bible is not just a best-hand book. At least, that's what Charles and I believe. In other words, there's a lot going on here, so join us on the Believing Art Podcast as we attempt to discuss it all and everything that lies in between. Podcast. I am Charles Ricks. And I am Seth Brown. And we're here for the wrap-up episode of season one. That's right. Ten episodes. Ten episodes in, and we're already thinking about our next season and what that might look like. But for this season, I think we wanted to maybe talk a little bit about where we've been. Yep. And then we've got one more uh, episode for you on Bosch. Yep, that's right. Uh, We're going to do a little review of the episodes we've talked about so far. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, favorite favorite episodes, takeaways, and then we'll we'll get into the Bosch, the phantasmagorical Bosch, wild Bosch. I'm really excited about it. He uh, he's been one of my favorite painters, just because of how crazy his paintings are. I mean, just absolutely wild. And it's from the 1500s. I know. It's it, not something new. Yeah, we were talking about it at lunch today. And, um, you know, you, you look at these paintings and you expect them to be sort of like a modern... Salvador Dali yeah, or Magritte but, or something like that. But they're and it's from not at all. 600 years ago, 500 years mm-hmm. ago. So, uh, But before we get to the Bosch, uh, we're going to review, do a little, uh, maybe a little review of our episodes... Uh, hopefully it won't take too long, but uh, yeah. So we covered a lot of ground this season. We talked about a lot of paintings. T- t- uh, this, by the time the season's over, we'll have talked about 11 paintings across 10 episodes because we did the dual, the dual painting for the Chile and the... And the Klimt. The Klimt. But um, yeah, our first episode, Tower of Babel. That's right. I just got Peter through uh, teaching that, actually, oh. uh, to my Pentateuch class yeah. at OC. And have, we did a whole day just on that one painting and looking, about, looking at how that painting speaks to stories about building things yeah. Yeah. in the Bible. And, um, you know, starting with Cain building a city, uh-huh. and now we build a tower, uh-huh. And then Solomon builds a temple, and Pharaoh has Egyptian building projects. And yeah. it was really interesting because as uh, I began to talk about that, and we began to engage uh, the Genesis 11 um, story along with Bruegel's painting, a student raised their hand and said, Well, this is all very interesting. So, what does that have to say about Noah building the ark? Oh. Which I thought was a pretty insightful question. Yeah, yeah. Um, because one of my projects, yeah, yeah building projects. Because you know, building projects generally involve oppression. Yep. Right, like the Solomon's Temple would be the one that um, mm. is pretty well documented in the Bible as forced labor. Yeah. Right, there's no guesswork there, as well as the Egyptian. Um, you know the, the the Egyptian building in Exodus, 
Um, but yeah, what about the what about the arc? I thought that was an interesting yeah. question. Maybe for the ear listener, they can uh, respond with their thoughts. Send it in. What That's about right. Arc? Was that an oppressive yeah. act, or was that a you know is the difference there that um, Noah willingly yeah. did it? Um, yeah, or well, you was know it a God-directed project? You know what's yeah. interesting about that is, you know who probably helped him? His sons. And, yeah. and so you see a father uh, subjecting his sons to work, particular mm-hmm. type of work based off of what God promised him. Right. And uh, I kind of think of Abraham and Isaac. Oh. And maybe there's something there with Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac. But uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Uh, the next episode after that was Klimt's Tree of Life. Um, decadent, swirling, effusive. Um, just a, a wonderful painting that speaks about the possibility uh, of life. Um, right. And, and really how life continues to give and give and give in ways that are... Um, really unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and the way life um, finds a way. Yeah, that's right. Life finds a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then following on the heels of that, we, we did uh, uh, the double painting, the Klimt and the Shile, the Kiss and Death and the Maiden. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked a little bit about um, innocence. What does innocence actually look like? We talked about the idea of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, Versus the real world, world. living in the real world. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that one, Charles? Well, just just thinking about the juxtaposition of of life and death mm. and love and clinging to someone, knowing that they're eventually going to die. You yeah. know, it's um, really you know the more I think about that that juxtaposition in some ways it's it's a way of talking about beginnings and endings mm. you know about about innocence and the loss of innocence yeah because when you've you know very much like genesis 3 goes you've got two people who are who are who are innocent they don't know the difference between good and bad and then they do mm. and so you know, the Klimt painting is like life is everywhere and love finds a way and, you know, two wrapped into one and it's gold and glittery and yeah. effusive, as you were talking yeah. about. And then the death and the maiden is just, you know, ugh. ugh you know, it's, <laughs> but a lot of times, you know, when, when things, you know, you don't know how life is going to turn out when you're born. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know what... Um, what kind of events you will be dealt. Mm. Um, you don't really have any concept of death until it hits you or someone near to you. Right. So I think the, not even so much the, the pieces of art themselves, but the way art is curated in a gallery. Yes. And the way in which we put them into conversation with each other that raises all these other questions. About about life and death, mm-hmm. yeah, and growing up and losing our innocence about how life actually works, mm-hmm. and um, 
So when I when I th- think about the Klimt's the kiss and then she lays death in the maiden, that's I I always think about that because mm-hmm. that was how I was in her, or at least how I saw them both together at the Belvedere, right there, right, right next to each other, in di- well, in different in, in, in different rooms, but, rooms, but right next to yeah. each other. So yeah. it. it Always makes me think about that. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's uh, we were talking a little bit again uh, uh, during lunch today about how do you know when something should end? How do you, how do you know? Oh, right, mm-hmm. right. How do you know when something's gone bad and you need to let go of it? Um, and and yeah, I, I think that's a question that that these paintings may lend some insight into and and, and may continue to uh, raise questions about. Uh, right knowing when those things and, and even that idea goes back to the Tower of Babel Rugel's Tower of Babel painting um, how, how do you know when a, a project a community project or a building project uh, needs to end needs to be done away with mm-hmm. at what point did the uh, the people building the tower abandon it um, when did they know it was time, time for it to be over well and I, and I think that's one of the purposes of this podcast right is to raise people's awareness yeah of how art can prompt um, prompt thinking and questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even not just abstract thinking mm-hmm. questions, but very like practical, tangible, um, you know, matters, matters. of day to day life. Mm-hmm. Like uh, just talking to my family about what it, what it means to go to church in in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one I'm still stuck in twenty twenty <laughs> what, what what does that mean? What does that look like to go to church how, how do you know when you need to move on from one church and join another or how do you know when you need to move on from church in general? Um, I mean these are tough questions, and I think art uh, is another way of of approaching them that's very valuable right. so uh, after that we talked about uh, Van Dyke's Samson and Delilah oh, wow. which and that is, was one of my favorites was I it have, I it, yeah to, it's so good I have to admit that I don't know that it was my all time favorite episode but it's one of my yeah. paintings I enjoy talking about the most because I'm so fascinated with the, the moment that that, pa- that painting yes. captures yes um, the look on Samson's face is oh. just can't get away from it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, we talked a lot in that one about kind of, I, I know I talked about the, that painting's personal effect on me and, and how, um, again, art has, has sort of given me an avenue by which I can understand and accept parts of myself that mm-hmm. I don't always like. I don't always... Um, appreciate you know the mistakes in my past, learning to be mm-hmm. okay with them. I, I found I found that somehow through this painting, through the, mm-hmm. through the look in Samson's face, uh, right? Just astounding. Uh, after that, we ta- we tackled two Caravaggios. We did uh, uh, David with the head of Goliath, and also the sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac. which both. <laughs> gosh, they, I, there's so much. There's so much in each of those paintings. Uh, but I thought David with the head of the Goliath was one of my favorites. Your favorites, yeah. Um, I, and I think part of that was Caravaggio's own backstory, in in how he brought his own experiences to his interpreting his interpretation of the David and Goliath story, and and right. how he picked up what he picked up on uh, helped us see what was hidden in the text. Perhaps that David was 
was maybe a bit more power hungry than than we we, we wanted, were wanted once led to believe. believe. Yeah. Um, so I, I really particularly enjoyed that one. Do you have any thoughts on the Caravaggio sacrifice of Isaac? Well, I'm uh, of course the the Genesis story of the sacrifice of Isaac is one that I have worked on and written about and taught on and then done it all over again multiple times. And, um, you know, again, it's kind of like we were talking about it at at lunch. You know, it's very hard to get past the horror of that story. Yes. To see the point. Right. But then on on the other hand, if all we ever do is focus on the what we think is the point of the story, and we never notice the horror, that's just as bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's something about that story that I think the Caravaggio won't let us forget, mm-hmm. and that is the horror on both of their faces. Right? I mean, Isaac certainly is terrified, but Abraham is equally dazed. Yeah, confused, dazed, detached, detached. almost. He's like he's disassociated. You know, because I imagine that that would be the only way as a father that you might be able to go through with that is you have to disassociate mm-hmm. entirely from yourself in order to. That's right. I mean, and there's there's no way of doing that without repercussions. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, um, can I talk about something? Sure. Can I talk about something and then. Um, if you want to take it out, you can take it out. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sure. But when I, since we did that podcast yeah. on the Caravaggio painting, right? Sacrifice of Isaac. I'm sorry. <laughs> since we did the podcast on the sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the, uh, for my work in playwriting, one of the 10 minute plays yeah. that I've had to, work on is something imaginary um, and I chose to do it on some aspect of uh, a biblical story that is not in the text but it's suggested Mm. by the text and so uh, what I chose to write about or to work on this uh, 10 minute 10 page um, stage play was what happened in the field between Cain and Abel Mm. and one of the one of the things that I imagined was, you know, what could have motivated Cain to kill Abel? Mm. Uh, and of course, almost everybody will say, well, he was jealous because God liked Abel's sacrifice better than him, and he was mad and he was upset about that. Um, but what if there's. The text doesn't say that, right? We just draw that from it. Mm -hmm. But I was reminded after we did that podcast about that both of these stories are in formative parts of the book of Genesis, right? Abraham's sacrificing Isaac and Cain and Abel, both of which involve um, family members killing another one. Yeah. There's a similarity there. And one of the things I explore in this 10-minute play is, is the possibility that after God had his conversation with Cain, um, 
Cain thought that perhaps his sacrifice could be improved by offering a sacrifice that was like Abel's. In other words, Cain's offering was bringing the grain or the fruit from the ground. Um, Abel's offering was a sheep, a live being. Uh, It was the first. It was fat portions, things like that. But it was still something that was alive, right? That the blood was shed. Is it possible that Cain thought that God would Mm. be pleased with him killing Abel as a sacrifice? Yeah. His, His brother, it's alive. It's more valuable than a sheep. It's a human being. Could that have been his motivation? Mm. I mean, we vilify Cain immediately, right? It's easy. Um, And, you know, God doesn't stop Cain from killing Abel. But clearly God is portrayed as watchful. Mm throughout all of those narrative sequences, right? So God could have stopped Abel, but didn't. And so it, 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 it makes me, I mean, God could have stopped Cain, but he didn't. So yeah. it just makes me wonder, um, you know, it's with God clearly seems clear sanctions the murder of a human being to prove faithfulness by asking Abraham. I mean, if we go that way with the story, sure. right? If God, you know, is, is not beyond asking for a human sacrifice. That's right. Could that be a darker side to the story of Cain and Abel that's mm. not recorded for us? Just a thought. I'm not saying that yeah. is. Yeah. But it makes me wonder about um, because everywhere else I think this is somebody will probably prove me wrong on this but pretty much everywhere else any kind of human sacrifice is prohibited as being Canaanite Mm. at least in the Torah right Um, people particularly parents who kill their children yeah so lots of I guess all I'm doing is just raising this question for thought that mm. I don't think the answers to that are quite so simple as maybe we've always thought they were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and, and along with that, if, if, if Cain is looking to find a worthy sacrifice or, or there's this notion that maybe Cain himself has to sacrifice something of great value to him. Yes. Then you wonder you always get the sense that maybe Cain and Abel were not on close terms. Well, obviously because Cain kills Abel, but with your particular take, is it possible that Cain and Abel were really close? Yes. Well, that's, and, that, mm-hmm. and that the value of the closeness of their relationship was part of the sacrifice that Cain was, was thinking he was laying down to please, please uh, the Lord. Yeah. That's, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, just a thought. Just a thought. Yeah. We don't have to dwell on this. No. <laughs> well, and, but I'm, I'm thinking also of... Um, I, I, we t- we've talked before about how 
in the Bible, it says, uh, the Lord comes to Cain and he says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, Mm -hmm. which can be taken one of two ways. It can, it can be understood as, uh, Abel's blood is crying out for the injustice that Cain has perpetuated against him. The blood is crying out to the Lord. Yes. It's not crying out to Cain. It's not crying out to Cain. It could also be understood as Abel's blood is crying out to the Lord who was in, who had the power to prevent the sacrifice. Yes. And didn't. And did not. As we saw he did with Abraham and Isaac. Mm. We find out later that the Lord prevents this kind of stuff. Why did he not prevent it in Cain and Abel? Mm-hmm. And is it, I mean, if we lay aside our um, presupposition that because God is God, God knows everything, mm-hmm. right? Which the Hebrew Bible doesn't actually ever say that. Right. But um, if we lay that aside, could it be that that is why God put the mark on Cain? Is because mm. Cain's point was well taken. Yeah. Yeah. Because Cain expressly is afraid of being killed. Mm-hmm. And so God puts the mark. Yeah. Right? But he didn't put the mark on Abel. So, yeah, and I always, I always thought Cain's, um, Cain's response was always seemed to me to be a little out of character. Mm-hmm. In how you know, in, in the traditional interpretation, he goes from this very snarky, you know, like, "Am I my brother's keeper?" to suddenly being very afraid. And that mm-hmm. transition never really made much sense to me. Um, how quickly his perspective changed because if he's really as um, snarky and difficult as we we like to think of him then that mm-hmm. that how does that change happen mm-hmm. in that in that quick turnaround so well maybe it, we're reading one or the other wrong well or maybe they're all possible yeah i mean th- we assume that um kane's tone is snarky mm-hmm. but we don't know what it sounded like because we weren't there so if you change the intonation to Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? Like, I thought, is this my responsibility? Implying, or God, is that your responsibility? Mm. Since God is referred to as the keeper of Israel, Psalm 121, that Mm. word is used over and over and over again. Right? I will keep you, I will watch you, I will, you know, all of that. So, there's just a lot going on. Yeah, there. <laughs> as, as usual, as usual. As usual. Uh, moving on. So we discussed some null days. Did two null yes. day paintings. Uh, Joseph recounts his dream, which is a story about brothers. Yes. How interesting. And then That's also another. dancing around the golden calf. Any mm-hmm. any thoughts on those? Reflections on those? So a little more recent. Well, the one on Joseph, the null day on Joseph, was more impactful to me because it's it, it's it's counter to the received tradition of mm. the story like the golden calf Nolde's painting portrayed the 
kind of the orgiastic type dancing right. around the calf, which has been part of the received tradition ever since Philo, right? Way, way, way back. So that story's kind of always been read that way. But the Joseph, the Nolde Joseph painting in those very penetrating green colors and yeah. that carnival jacket that or coat that Joseph is wearing and the look on his face. Yeah. It's there it's more sinister. Mm. The Joseph is more troubling. You know, I think Joseph maybe thanks to the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat musical mm-hmm. right has always seemed more adorable, more um Naive, naive, innocent, uh, innocent, the victim of mean older brothers. Um, but the Nolde doesn't paint him that way, mm. and so that grabbed me from the first moment that I physically saw the painting. Yeah. I was like, "Oh well, wow!" And even his brothers are very much caricatured. You look at them and you go, "That's not what they actually looked like." Uh huh. Even though typically we understand them that way. We read the story and picture them as these very caricatured, mean, mm-hmm. vicious, mocking older brothers. But but you look at the painting; it's like that's not what they really look like. That's not right. An actual human face. That's just a grotesque exaggeration of what's mm-hmm. going on. So yeah, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, we talked uh, the dancing around the golden calf. That one, I I really like that one too. I think for me, the the notion of understanding Israel as still being in, a, in partnership with God and still working things out, even though they've um, just come out of Egypt, they're still learning this God. They're still learning what it looks like to be in a partnership with him. And, and their reaction to building a golden calf or making a golden calf mm-hmm. maybe becomes a little more understandable when you place it in its context as opposed to us when we read it we we um just assume that they knew everything we did and mm-hmm. they don't so uh, and that leads us to our final uh painting in our season one series Raphael's transfiguration mm. yeah a really good one i liked that yeah um yeah i we, i really well i really liked um I really love that painting mm-hmm. because of the, of the two-part structure, right? Yeah. You have the, the, the transfiguration on the top, but then you have the sort of the earthly realities down underneath it. And just the way that text flows in the Gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. um, as you read through the sequence, it tracks with the Raphael painting, yeah. right? You read from... You know the the height of the painting to the depth of the painting, um, just like your eyes sort of come down from heaven to earth and mm-hmm. then below earth and <laughs> into the bowels of human existence that mm-hmm. are ugly and messy and 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 you you see this the sort of this notion of lordship or heavenly reign in various forms over that. Yeah. Yeah. Theologically, it's really powerful. 
I appreciated the, the way that the two paintings were incomplete without each other. And this yes. goes back to the notion of partnership. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it does, in some sense, take both, both parts of that painting to make complete sense of the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a really good takeaway from that one. So that's it. That's, that's our episodes that we discussed. Any, uh, Charles, I'm curious, what, do you have any big takeaways from our first season? Any big thoughts? Um, well, something we started with at the very beginning um, is the idea that texts say things mm-hmm. and texts do things, right? So, you know, the text, a biblical text, communicates information to us, but it also intends to act on us, mm. Right. I mean, it's it's not neutral. Right. right? It, it is trying to get us to see a point of view or perhaps multiple points of view. Right. But it's not neutral. Mm. And so the, you know, and art is very much the same way. Right. Art has a content to it, but it's it's painted or sculpted or composed um, to have an effect on us. Right. So, again, art is not neutral. So we it, it may be met with indifference on our part, but that's sure. our issue. It's not the arts issue. So I think a big a big takeaway would be when we engage either the Bible as a as a text, which is also art, that that we realize that dimension of it mm. that it's not just information. Mm. It, it is it in, it's intending to act upon us in some way. What yeah. is that? Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated how our dialogue led us to places that we had not previously been. And how mm, yes. I mean there were several there were several episodes where by the time we hit the end, I felt like we had we had we had hit a place that we hadn't been before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of the transfiguration. Putting that one together for me was was seeing how the two paintings or the two halves of the painting really make the whole, and you can't yes, have one without right. the other. That was that was really good. The um, David with the head of Goliath. Um, that one was really good, but but these truths arise in dialogue. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I just really appreciated. Appreciated that fact. And well, that's the fun part about yeah, all of this. That's right. that's right. That's why we're doing the podcast. Yeah, and that's why we also want you, the listener, listener. to be in dialogue with us. That's right. Um, yeah. So that was our quick, quick review, or mostly quick review. Um, we will take a quick break, and we will be right back. Okay. All right. Welcome to the break. Charles and I are still here. Yeah, we're still here. Talking about season two, which we're going to focus on music. Yes, that's right. Um, Both classical music and also uh, pop music. Yeah. Uh, And maybe even how those two inform each other. Yeah. Because there's a lot of pop music that has its roots in classical music. Mm -hmm. No surprise there. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the the pop music is just a direct lift. They change the rhythm a little bit or change the beat or something. But yeah. 
when I was, I remember when I was growing up, there was this craze. It didn't last very long, but it was called switched on Bach. Oh, what it was Bach fun. played on a synthesizer with a really contemporary jazz or disco beat. Yeah. This is back in the eighties. So show you how long switched ago that on was. Bach. We should or seventies. It was switched on Bach. We should you know? do a, a, a segment on, on one of those. One of those. On Bach. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, but that, that it was really fun. But I, but at the time, it was a little bit like, you know, that kind of crossover wasn't. Is it a little irreverent? Real perhaps? irreverent. Yeah. But I mean, Gershwin was that way. Okay. You know, the way back. I mean, Gershwin was maybe. I mean, such a great American composer. But he. Yeah, we should do some Gershwin. Um, he was actually Jewish, a Russian Jewish immigrant, and. Of course, you know, the famous piece, Rhapsody in Blue, was the, you know, the piece he's the most known for, although he wrote lots of other things. But, you know, that's a, you know, kind of a kaleidoscope. It's a very New York piece, a kaleidoscope of diversity and Americana and Mm. a lot of things thrown together. Um, Structurally, it's just one thing after another, but yet it works. Yeah. This really great piece. But I'm thinking about... um, you know, his opera, Porgy and Bess. Yeah. Um, which, for its day, its comment on on race and racism is just mind-blowing, mm. right? Um, but in, in the... Uh, in the opera, there's a song. In fact, many listeners, you may be, you probably, you may know it, called "It Ain't Necessarily So," uh, which yeah. is "Don't Believe Everything You Hear," and it's actually um, sort of a jab at uh, people who want to use religion as a way to oppress others. Mm-hmm. Right. So, don't believe you hear. Don't believe everything your minister says about the Bible. Is is what this song is about. Wow. And you put that in the context of race, and you put that in the early part of um, the 1900s in the American South, and it is a very explosive wow piece for its day. I mean, it e- done well today. Um, it's even really powerful. Yeah. Um, but I think there's. You know, things like that will be very interesting to discuss. Yes, I agree. Uh, yeah, that was a little, uh, little um, teaser for little season, season two. two. Uh, some of the things we'll be discussing. Really looking forward to that. Going to explore this music as, as art. And mm-hmm. um, looking forward to the dialogues and conversations that come about from that. Um, always open to suggestions. We're, we're yeah. still open to paintings. We might we might dash off and do a painting here and there during mm-hmm. season two. We're not going to restrict ourselves unnecessarily. Certainly. So, um, but yeah, but if yeah, and all just to reiterate, um, put a kind of a highlighter on what Seth was saying is if you've got a a painting or a piece of music, uh, really any a sculpture, anything yeah. that you would like for us to discuss, please. Um, Email us and let us know. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we always do. Um, please rate us on iTunes. That'll help support us. That'll help uh, other people find our show. If you listen to us on iTunes, that'd be great. Just drop us a review. Um, if, if not, if you listen on some other service, just word of mouth. 
again, word of mouth is, is <laughs> continues to confound me in this day and age about how effective it, it is. is. Um, you know, it seems it seems like it would make more sense that you could tweet something about a podcast and it would go viral or be more effective than mm-hmm. word of mouth. But I, I don't know. Word of mouth seems to be, in my experience, very effective. It's still so very effective. If you, if you know someone who might be interested in in what we're talking about, sh- let them know. Share the show with them, and uh, we'd really we'd really appreciate it. We might also in season two start doing some Patreon stuff. We haven't talked. Whole yep. lot mm-hmm. in depth about it, but we want to start offering some some a little more unique content mm-hmm. um, for for listeners, and uh, that'll that'll help us um, at least cover the cost of hosting the podcast and hosting it on a website. You know, right? Uh, that'd be that'd be great. We just want to see where this goes, so uh, we might be putting out some Patreon stuff in season two. In season two, it's very possible. So. Uh, anything else, Charles? Uh, any other final messages no. for you? I think we're good. All righty. Go well, uh, with that, we're gonna we're gonna return and and jump right into Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch. Nice. So we'll see you in a second. Okay. And we're back. We're back. We are back from the break, the wonderful break, and we are gonna just. I think we should just jump right into the painting. I think so too. This it, this one is. I think it's a great one to end on um, because there is so many things happening in this painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an understatement, and I I think it's a good one to end on too because I I while I'm familiar with this painting, I haven't done a whole lot of you know really intense observation of it or reflection on it, and I don't know if you've done the same. So I think I think it's a fun one to end on. Just mm-hmm. there's so many different places we could go with this painting. Um, so for those of you who are looking at the painting or at least a portion of it in your podcast viewer, uh, this is, uh, the painting called the garden of earthly delights by Hieronymus Bosch. It was around in the late 1400s, 1480 to about 1515, mm-hmm. uh, the years that he was active, uh, early 1500s. Um, and this particular painting is what is called a, a triptych, mm-hmm. triptych, is triptych. it triptych? Mm-hmm. Which is a a uh, it's a particular type of painting that is set typically on an altar, and it's got uh, kind of a main portion with panels that fold in and out. And so when this triptych is closed, you've got a painting on the outside, which we probably won't discuss a whole lot, uh, and then you fold it open, and then you've got a painting on the left panel, a painting in the center, which is usually the center of the center work uh, and then a painting on the right and these sort of three panel paintings all inform each other and provide the opportunity to tell a story sort of like a comic strip almost right um, you know three three panel comic strip tells a story which during the middle ages when people couldn't read the bible was very useful in communicating certain truths pictorially Right. I mean, and hence Russian iconography. Yes. And all of the different paintings that you find in cathedrals and churches. Mm-hmm. It all had a, um, I mean, it was art as the text, right? People That's right. can't That's read, right. you can see it. You can yeah. It. Well, that, that comment's interesting because what we're doing is we're trying to kind of like merge the art and the text. At least in this that's podcast. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that that's where it started and then something happened and we kind of disconnected 
text from art. From art. And now, I think what we're trying to do at mm-hmm. least is bring it back together. So. Well, and there's there's always the the anxiety about a piece of art, no matter what you call it, becoming an icon or an idol mm. where it's worshipped for its beauty or its um, its size or you know rather than for what it says and then for what it there's a message and so in the, in the Christian tradition there's always been a some segments of, of people have have been had a lot of angst about that yeah which is further the dissociation that's right between the value of the theological value of art um, and the the Bible yeah, itself. That's right. Um, so with that being said, within this particular triptych, the Garden of Earthly Delights, uh, we got our three panels. Uh, and the first panel on the left uh, kind of depicts the creation story. You right. see Adam and Eve and a bunch of crazy animals and the beginnings of sort of typical Hieronymus Bosch uh, fantasy-like structures, uh, fantasy-like depictions. Uh, it's all on that left. And then as we transition to the center, suddenly everything explodes into this circus-like, orgiastic uh, mm-hmm. affair where everything is going on. I mean, it's, it's really hard to describe exactly what is going on, except every sort of configuration of human being is sort of smushed together in various forms and fashions mm-hmm. and it's quite wild and and seems to be at least maybe on on uh, on first pass maybe a critique of lust sexual desire mm-hmm. sexual pleasure um, and then briefly moving to the final panel we have sort of the maybe the judgment of you wonder those those same figures in the center panel uh, in this hellish landscape with Again, fantastical creatures and just bizarre, bizarre shapes and scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that being said, Charles, what if, if where do you, where do you, I don't what do you want to do with this painting? I don't even know where to begin. Well, I think if we read it left to right, like that, right? Starting with the guard, um, it's. It very much has the same feeling of a Klimt in that you're you're looking at the proliferation of life, right? I mean, whatever it is all these people are doing, um, they're certainly not standing still. And, you know, you, you, it's, it's like a, a flourishing of life and reproductive sexual energy. Um, and it's it's kind of not gone wild but it's in full bloom yes right there's there's very little restraint really in this in this picture certainly at the bottom of the picture as you move kind of up to the top you get a a little bit more of an organization Mm -hmm. um and you know maybe um it's talking about some kind of Governance mm. over, I mean, the top seems to govern the top right. painting seems to govern the bottom of the painting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there there are formal structures, like actual form. structures, in the top of the painting. 
right where that have it? some sort of semblance of being put together put, right so you know, I I think about life force. Okay. When I think about the the middle, particularly, you know, if it's the garden of delight, then you know, could this could this be in reference to the other tree in the biblical garden? Mm. Right. Sure. The, the tree of not the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. Yeah. Right. Where. Um, people are all in the, they're proliferating and they're all in the garden. Yeah. And I mean, kind of the way I always like to think in the alternative, you know, it's like, what else could it be? Mm-hmm. Even if it's maybe not. But if we look at kind of what's going on in the bottom of the painting, right? It's, I mean, there are all these people in all of these sexual positions, right? And they're all mostly naked right well I mean it, it raises the question what if you eat of the tree of life without eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then it's just life everywhere with no sense of shame or guilt or impropriety or anything like that is that what this is yeah is, that's... That, what, is that what we're looking at that's that's where my mind was was going to as mm-hmm. I spent just a little bit of time. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that th- this is still in a garden. Um, mm-hmm. People are naked, and mm-hmm. again, if we're talking about naked people in a garden, we go to immediately Adam and Eve, and we can't escape it with this with this one in particular. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It, it, in my mind, this seems to be a playing out of one particular story or possible story. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Adam and Eve maybe didn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but instead uh, just continued to eat from the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And of course, our, we look at this today, and and in many ways, we that that raises a lot of other questions, um, such as was it really good that they in that alternative story where they only eat from the tree of life. Uh, this painting would seem to raise questions as to whether that was good or whether that was a uh, beneficial result that they only ever ate from the tree of life rather than mm-hmm. the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. It's um, well, and, and also um, you think of life, uh, life without control as um, that's not necessarily a good thing either. that's right Mm -hmm. I've I've um, in this uh, podcast I listened to the Baymont podcast which I would heartily recommend uh, I heard this example that that uh, cancer cancer is a sort of life without control Uh, it is cells just continuously replicating but it's that sort of unending uh, explosion of life that ends up killing a body and, and and you know bringing it to an end. And so, yeah, you do wonder is, is that sort of life without control? Is that really good? It's not good. It's not, it's not good either. Well, I think we, we know that in kind of instinctively maybe Mm -hmm. that, you know, when a child is born, if they're never disciplined, Mm. I mean, there's nothing more lively than a two year old. (laughs) I mean, or than a, you know, for most of the time, so, 
you know, if you let people just run wild and there's no restraints or there's no restrictions, then you have chaos. And I think that's kind of how you wind up with the flood story. Mm, yeah. You know, the whole world covered with violence with Hamas. Yeah. So there's got to be some regu- regulatory thing. Right. That's right. Thing. Yeah. You have any thoughts on that right panel, the the panel of judgment? Well, maybe maybe that is what happens when life isn't regulated. Yeah. It it's like cancer because you know with 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 my experience, you know, with with Jenny dying of sure. cancer, that is the one thing that I actually witnessed up close and personal about cancer mm. is that it grows so fast it kills itself. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it can't, it grows so fast it can't support itself and then, then it dies. Unfortunately, the person dies with it. Yeah. But when the cancer grows so fast that it, it can't receive any more nutrients, right, then the person is dead, mm. but then so is the cancer. Mm-hmm. It's not like the cancer picks up and walks up, walks somewhere. Yeah. You know, it, it's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I have two thoughts. The first one, um, that conversation reminds me of, again, at lunch, what we were discussing. Mm-hmm. There's another podcast that I've been listening to called The, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which tells the yes. story mm-hmm. of this church in Seattle that had this sort of explosive growth uh, in the early 2000s and was sort of led by... Uh, certain figure, their pastor, who um, was in some ways a cancer and and sort of this explosive growth was unsustainable. And there's a huge controversy, which you should listen to the podcast if you're at all interested in hearing that story. And the, the, the church folded on itself. It wasn't sustainable. So in a very similar way, yeah, that, that metaphor of cancer, sure. it can be applied, I think, to that particular story of, of Mars Hill mm-hmm. Church. Um, and then also this, the other thought I had was, you. I think that right panel we look at and go, and I think in, in the actual original intent, it is the final judgment or the last judgment. Mm-hmm. But what you said made me think that what if this is sort of pre-flood? What if this mm. is the world before the flood um, this is sort of where this unending life has led us to this this world, and in this world, it's just very terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's very brutal and uh, hellish, demonic, but demonic, grotesque. Um, well, and it very easily, you know, it's the last judgment, but it's is it the judgment that humanity brings on itself mm, yeah yeah you know, that you know left left to one's left to one's devices in the middle panel mm. is the end result of that that people turn on each other yeah. and when desire goes amok and you can't get what you want yeah. then there's nothing to restrain you and it winds up like the final panel that's right yeah I like how in the in the background of that final panel on the right, you see these buildings in the background, and they look like they're on fire. And it's, it's almost it, it, you almost wonder if it's the same landscape in each panel, um, just p- captured at different time timelines, different t- 
time frames. Yes, uh, I think that could be. In, in, the, in the left panel, you sort of have the beginnings of these structures in the background, and in the, in the middle, these structures are sort of fully formed, and then in the right, we see those same structures in the background just mm-hmm. uh, smoldering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd also, I, I, I want to explore this idea, in, if, unless you have... No, please, go ahead. The idea that this happened in the 1500s, that this painting was created in the 1500s, I think that's a really important uh, fact that when we approach this painting, uh, there are a lot of images uh, and even metaphors within those images that, that we may not receive or understand because we weren't alive in Netherlands, mm-hmm. in the Netherlands in the 1500s. Uh, we weren't fami- we're not familiar with the language. We're not familiar with the idioms. Um, I know in doing some research on this painting that scholars point to many metaphors that are captured specifically in the middle painting. And um, we don't have access to that per se immediately. And so, I don't know. I, I think there's something to be said about being culturally distant from this painting, that we, we need to be our, our little alarms bells need to be going off that we need to be careful in how we immediately take it one way or the other Um, yeah because there's so much that we can't know yeah or at least are just not familiar with Mm -hmm. enough to to say one way or the other Um, it's also interesting to me that it's a a, a 1500s painting because the Peter Bruegel's the tower was also of the Mm -hmm. same period Mm -hmm. 1500s and his Paintings largely dealt with dealt with village life. Yeah. Um, and so this is another kind of village life painting, mm-hmm. one might say. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but in in all of his, like I think in this one, you're you're forced to reckon with kind of the the force of life that goes forward in one way. Or another, mm-hmm. right? It's not just going to stand still. So there's movement from first panel, second panel, third panel. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this painting? Um, maybe the only other thought is to think about the message of coloring. Okay, yeah. Um, where you have the life colors in panels one and two, the blues and the greens. Yep. Uh, and then it all goes black in the last black one. Black and brown and, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, that talks to you about progression as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I like, um, if, if you, again, were to imagine this as a panel that folds in and out... Um, the the outer panel has a giant sphere, which represents sort of the creation of the world. You've got God in the corner, mm-hmm. and so you sort of have this story literally unfolding before you. Um, you've got the panel closed. You see the creation of the world, and you take the left panel and open it up, and there's you know Adam and Eve, and you can see half of the center panel and some of the craziness that's going on, and then you unfold the right panel, and it's it's like the story again is unfolding and, and, and the artist 
is making a point with how these panels fold and unfold. And fold. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, I, it's really. It's also. I, it's fun to look at. Like it is. There, it is. It's like a, I don't know if I mentioned this, but it's like a Where's Waldo painting. Painting, yeah. Or a Where's Waldo, where, and I used to love those books as kids. Not just the Where's, Where's Waldo, but um, I Spy. It reminds me of an I Spy book, and mm-hmm. I loved those. I mean, I would right. just spend time poring over and finding every little, little detail. Detail, and, yeah. Um, well, it, the painting invites that. Yeah, yeah. Very much invites that. Yeah. It's playful. Yeah, certainly playful. Do you have any final thoughts on this painting before we wrap up season one? Just continue to look at it. That's right. Yeah. This one, I'm, I'm really interested to get people's reactions on this one. The, uh, I want to I hear what people think about the tree man in the right panel and the two ears with the knife yes. coming out of it. I mean, there's just, uh, it's so good. So good. Well, I think that's all we got for this yeah. this painting. Uh, thanks for sticking around with us. I think this is a bit longer of an episode, but uh, well, we did the review. It's we did the review. It's only appropriate in right. season one. And thank you everybody for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in, and we are going to have new content for yeah. next for season two. Yeah. Brand new yeah. content. And we we just as a little teaser before we officially wrap up the episode. Uh, there's another. Uh, episode that I still am editing that we did with a guest, Abby Woodard. That's right. Uh, that I have not yet released, and we'll probably release that sometime in the next couple of weeks as sort of an interim between season one and season, season two. two. So be, It has to do with music. Yes, it does. Uh, Beethoven and Isaiah. Isaiah. So, and uh, I play on that one, so if yes. you're interested in that, just look I mean, Yeah. Uh, We'll make sure it gets out to you guys here pretty quick. So thanks again for sticking with us, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Believing Art Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Believing Art, that's one word, for all our updates, episode releases, and other miscellaneous. We'll see you next time.